Hello, my name is Brian Matlaga. I'm the Associate Director of Education for the Endourology Society, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Endourology Soundbites, which is the Society's podcast series sponsored by Richard Wolf. And this is really, I think, one of the most fun parts of being in the society is that we're able to have these conversations with really the leaders in the field and explore topics in more detail than we otherwise would be able to. And so in this episode, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Dirk Lang, who's an associate professor in urology at the University of British Columbia. He also serves as the director of basic science research at Vancouver General Hospital for Urology and is the chair of the Stent Working Group for the Endourological Society. And given all of those positions and roles you hold, what we'll be doing over the next 10 to 15 minutes is really peeling back the layers on ureteral stents and trying to understand a little bit more about some of the present areas of research and then you know what do we think the future of ureteral stents may hold. So Dr. Lang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So I'll open with just a very broad question. Are there any new developments in our quest for the ideal stent? Right. That's always the big question that's asked. And the answer really is that no, there's not. I mean, if you look at whether there have been any sort of new stents that have come out over the past few years, and really, I think the most recent one was, I believe it's called the TRIA stem from Boston Scientific, which supposedly reduces calcium and magnesium incrustation. But other than that, nothing has come out. And of course, that one is being tried around the world right now. And so I suppose time will tell on whether or not uh, it really makes a difference. My mentor, Dr. Jim Lingaman, used to say, I'm just a simple urologist. When it comes to stents, taking me as the simple urologist audience, what does it mean when we talk about things like biofilm formation on stents, bacterial adhesion, incrustation, just like from the very basics? It's always interesting because when I review an article, for example, for a journal of urology or other journals, when they use the word biofilm in the title, I always have to make sure that I kind of read the introduction to see what it is that they're specifically referring to. In the scientific world, biofilm refers to the actual bacteria attaching to the surface and forming a community which is surrounded by this exopolysaccharide, which is basically a very thick, gooey layer of sugar and protects the underlying layers of bacteria, makes them up to a thousand times more resistant to antimicrobial treatment than if the bacteria were in their free swimming form. But what I find sometimes when reviewing manuscripts is that, especially in the urology world, people will also refer to biofilm as the layer of urinary components that deposits on the surface of stents. And so that is more correctly referred to as a conditioning film. But biofilm itself refers in the greater scientific world to the actual bacteria attaching. So when you think about stent design, is the focus more on that conditioning film or is it more on the biofilm if you're trying to reduce incrustation mm -hmm. or is it a combination? It's really been interesting. In the past, I mean, there have been many attempts at changing stent materials, changing charges, changing other kind of physical and chemical characteristics, drug elution, and so on and so forth. And of course, what we found is that in vitro, these things work great. In some in vivo models, animal models, these things work fantastic. But then as soon as you go into the patient, the whole characteristics, the results that we've seen in all these preclinical models change significantly, and these stents, unfortunately, never make it to market. And we asked ourselves that question in our research program here in Vancouver is why that is. And so, you know, we started to dive a little bit more into this whole idea of the conditioning film. 
But I mean, if you look at the literature, there have been some very nice reports that have shown that within minutes of inserting stent into the urinary tract, you get the deposition of proteins and other ionic compounds and components onto that surface to form that conditioning film. And so it kind of makes sense that over time, as that conditioning film builds up, because the composition of the urine is so complex, consisting of components that have all kinds of different chemical and physical characteristics, there'll be something in the mix that'll attach to whatever novel material or coating surface that you've come up with and basically forms this layer that blocks and covers any proprietary coating or what have you, changes that you've made to it. And so it just basically renders it ineffective and therefore provides scaffold for bacteria to attach and also uh, crystals to attach. We've looked a bit further into identifying common conditioning film components and have found some of those to actually be calcium binding proteins. And so it is plausible that these can quite easily bind calcium oxalate crystals or calcium phosphate crystals or other types of crystals and become an itis for encrustation. So I suppose this was a long answer to your question, but the conditioning film plays a very important role in triggering stent-associated infections as well as encrustation. And research in that area, at least in our program, has focused on preventing both conditioning film deposition and bacterial interaction with the stent surface. And to touch on one of the points that you made, it sounds like one of the challenges in this whole research process is an appropriate model, be it in vivo or in vitro. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the models that are used and kind of what are their strengths and limitations? Certainly. I mean, the go-to preclinical model that comes closest to humans, of course, the pig. And that's because the anatomy is closest to what we have in humans. And working with pig becomes quite expensive. And even stenting a pig can become quite complicated at times. And there's a bit of a learning curve involved there. There are some smaller animal models that have been used. There's a rabbit model, for instance, although in that particular model, it usually involves the implantation of stem pieces into the bladder, for example, and you can test encrustation resistance or bacterial adhesion resistance and things like that. One of the limitations of the rabbit model, though, is that the urine composition is quite different from that of humans in that it contains very dense compounds and it's very cloudy, very milky almost. And so that needs to be taken into consideration when evaluating results. But beyond that, beyond this pig and the rabbit model, there really aren't any other ones that are widely used in stent research. And this may be a kind of quote-unquote dumb question, but something as simple as taking just a bath and putting the stents in a bath that would mimic the urinary environment, is that feasible or there's just some very basic issues with that render it just not the appropriate model? No, not at all. It's an incremental step, right? So let's say I've developed a new novel material or novel coding, and I want to do a proof of concept type study. And basically what I would do is I would, in fact, do exactly what you said, just develop a simple in vitro model, exposing it to the specific conditions that I'm trying to prevent, just to show that in a very simple model, it works the way I need it to work. But of course, as you move further down the line and try to get a company interested in what you're doing, you need to start moving towards more realistic models. And the importance of really testing in vivo is the fact that multiple factors that will affect the performance of your technology come into play there, you know, be it immune system, urine flow, varying urine composition, the movement of the animal, and so on and so forth. Peristalsis, for example, if we talk about stents, becomes a very important issue as well. 
So the ultimate test, of course, is humans. But before we can get to that, the ultimate test will be a, a very good, reliable and most realistic animal model. And so a lot of this discussion on bacterial adhesion, biofilm formation, encrustation, obviously is a very important component when we speak of stents. But many patients will have stents for a much shorter dwell time where these may be less Mm -hmm. of an issue. And those patients are much more so troubled by pain associated with stents. We haven't made great progress as a field in stent pain. What are your thoughts on what we've done to date? And as you look at this problem, how would you think what the future may hold? Stent pain and discomfort, as you know, is of course the most common and the worst of the complications with stents. And I think what is it, 80% of patients that have a stent in dwelling will complain of this. And so, I mean, you're quite right. We haven't made much progress on that front. Again, there's certainly been various things tried over the years. But I think the underlying issue here is that we think we understand what causes it, but we don't really understand what causes it. And of course, while irritation of the bladder as the patient moves and the stent moves, as well as vesicourethral reflux all play a role. There are other factors that must also play a role. And again, I come back to our research program and sort of the philosophy that we have. And we need to take a step back and really understand exactly how the ureter responds to indwelling stents to truly be trying to figure out what are these specific mechanisms that we may be missing that might contribute to patient pain and discomfort. And I mean, over the years, we've done several studies on the pig model, studying this over time. And we, as well as others, of course, have shown that as soon as you put a stent in within 24 to 48 hours, peristalsis stops completely. And that's because you get this dilation of the ureter. What essentially happens is that you get a gross dilation, which overstretches the ureter and triggers the inflammatory response that's also been observed and causes smooth muscle dysfunction. And that in and of itself, yes, you have a stent in place, there is some drainage, but that drainage is still somewhat limited and results in some level of hydronephrosis and back pressure. In fact, if you've ever looked at a pig where there has been no obstruction, but you've put a stent in place, those will develop stent-induced hydronephrosis. And again, some of our recent studies have suggested that the ureter will respond to a stent like it is a partial obstruction. And so when we look at the research that's been done centered around stent pain, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen, I think, as you said, a number of different trials that have shown us some things that unfortunately don't work. But what are your thoughts on whether part of the solution is going to be stent design? We've seen loop stents, tail stents, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. materials, whether it's the silicone stent, going back to the absorbable stent. Do you have a thought or if you had to predict, you know, which of those may ultimately see an ultimate benefit? Yeah. And, you know, I think much like stone disease itself, stent pain discomfort is a multifactorial issue. And so I think ultimately what may help is a combination of improved stent design, but also looking to perhaps maintain some level of peristalsis with a stent in place to improve that urine drainage and decrease the stent-induced hydronephrosis and things like that. I mean, you touched on biodegradable stents. Those are very interesting in that as they degrade over time, it would be interesting to see whether that in and of itself improves the pain and discomfort because a lot of these biodegradable stents are designed to degrade from the bladder side upwards so that they don't slip out. And, you know, again, the bladder has been proposed to play a significant role in some of this pain. And as the material degrades upwards, I wonder if that does improve the situation at least somewhat. 
Yeah. I mean, there's certainly lots of work to be done. We're drawing to our close in terms of our time, but this was incredibly informative for me. I really learned a great deal about stents and something that I think all of the listeners have probably put in a couple of stents right before listening to the podcast <laughs> or will be putting some stents in after listening to the podcast. It's really a part of our lives and a part of our patients' lives. So Dr. Lang, again, I want to thank you for being a part of this podcast series. Thank you. No, my pleasure. And of course, on behalf of the Endourology Society, I'd like to thank Richard Wolf for sponsoring this podcast series and Marianne Liebert for coordinating the recording and distribution of it. And look forward to welcoming the listeners back to the next installment of the series. Thank you very much. Thank you.